Well, visualize for me, visualize a beautiful butterfly, uh, maybe a monarch, right, with this distinctive orange and black wings. It's the state insect of Texas. Did you know that we had a, a state insect? Well, we do. And, and while you might assume that it's the mosquito or the fire ant or the, the cockroach, it's actually the monarch butterfly. The monarch butterflies that, that pass through Texas twice a year. Uh, once during their migration north from the mountains of Mexico every spring, and then again during their migration back south again from Canada every fall. Now, that, that, that image of a butterfly that you have in your mind right now, what is that butterfly doing? Is it, is it fluttering overhead just out of reach? Is it hovering just over a flower as it, as it comes down for some nectar? Is it perched on a, a tree branch somewhere? Well, one thing I suspect that, that no one visualized was a beautiful butterfly crawling on the dirt and gorging itself with leaves, right? That'd be a, a strange image. That's not what butterflies do. They, they flutter, they, they hover, they perch. They drink nectar from flowers. They don't crawl on the ground. They don't gorge themselves with leaves, at least not anymore. Sure, that, that's how every butterfly once behaved when it was a caterpillar. But once it was reborn as a butterfly, well, it, it no longer lives like a caterpillar. Butterflies are not what they once were. But what about those who have been born again as Christians? I invite you to turn with me to, to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. You can find it very near the end of your Bible, specifically on page 232 in the second half of the Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let us pray. Fathers, we come to your living and abiding word this morning. Nourish us by your word. Enliven us by your word, that we may further taste your goodness in your word and grow up into salvation. Bless the preaching of your word this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, in the first 12 verses of Peter's letter, he helped us to meditate upon the grace of that we have received in Jesus Christ. A grace that has not only saved us and secured our eternal inheritance, but a, a grace that sustains us and even sanctifies us through every trial that we face. 
saving grace, sustaining grace, sanctifying grace. Then, verses 13 through 21, Peter began to address how those who have received that grace, that unmerited gift, how they should then live their lives, namely, as holy, set apart from the world in order to be useful to the world. Well, the the remainder of the lettering, including our seven verses today, continues to flesh out what all that means, what all that entails, what it means to be holy as God is holy. Our section today begins, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Purified by obedience? Is Peter commending a works-based righteousness, a, a salvation through moral living? Well, certainly not. Uh, such a, a notion is entirely precluded by everything that has come before and everything that comes after. It's not precluded just by the repeated emphasis on grace, but by the immediately preceding language of having been ransomed, having been liberated, having been set free, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but having been liberated, set free, ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He's made perfectly clear that that our salvation is entirely based on Christ's perfect, blemish-free righteousness. Not our own. By His obedience, not our own. Those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ have been covered with His righteousness. For He alone lived the life that we have failed to live. He alone died the death that we deserve for our sins. As Peter will say in chapter 2, by His wounds you have been healed. Our salvation is all of grace. We contribute nothing by our obedience. It's a gift received through faith. But it must be received. It must be personally received. To reject the gift of grace is to fail to receive that gift of grace. It cannot be received by you or for you, by someone else, by, someone, by your parents, by your fellow church members, by your pastor. No, you must receive the gift. You must respond to the call of the gospel to place your trust in Christ's sacrifice in your place. So Peter, he refers to that initial trusting in Christ, that initial exercising of faith. He refers to it as obedience, obedience to the gospel. In verse 22 here, Peter calls it obedience to the truth. And then the next few verses, he clarifies that this truth through which we are born again is the good news that was preached to you. Verse 25. That is the gospel of salvation in Christ. The opening words of this letter, Peter referred to it as obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with His blood. In chapter 4, near the end, chapter 4, verse 17, he'll make it even more explicit by by speaking of those who do not obey the gospel of God. Peter is writing to encourage all who have obeyed the gospel. Notice the, the past perfect tense here in verse 22. It says, having purified your souls. Those who have been born again through faith in Jesus have already purified, already cleansed, their souls. Now, it's, it's not that we have yet been made perfectly clean through and through, but, but rather we have been declared. We've been declared by God to be clean because of the righteousness of Christ received through faith. The word for purified here, having purified your souls, it's, 
The same root word as the word for sanctification in verse 2. That's the word for holy in verse 15 and 16. This language of purified, of cleansed, of sanctified, of holy is the language of consecration. Having been set apart for a sacred purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, he tells us, having purified, having set apart your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So what does it mean to be purified, to to be holy? What have we been set apart for? Well, in a word, love. Not just any love, but a a sincere love, an earnest love, a a from-the-heart kind of love. Sometimes uh, we Christians will talk about love being a verb, right? Love is a verb. We're seeking to emphasize what love does, that it's about actions more than feelings. We often talk in that way as as a corrective to the world's misunderstanding about what love is. Because the world distorts what love is in a variety of ways. For one, there's the, the idolatrous romantic love that seeks for wholeness in a soulmate. Someone who completes you in a way that only God can complete you. It's a sinful love that seeks from the creature what only the Creator can give. That's an idolatrous, romantic love. And then there's the distortion of an idolatrous, sensual love that seeks for fulfillment and even seeks for our sense of identity in exercising our our self-serving sexual desires. Usually in a way that's in direct contrast and contrary to God's design for the gift of that within marriage. Of course, more broadly, there's the distortion of love Uh, Beyond one's intimate relationships, the world has redefined love of neighbor as not having negative evaluations of the way that others choose to live, striving to make everyone feel accepted and affirmed in their personal forms of self-expression. That's what we're told love is. So then, in seeking to to correct these feelings-oriented distortions of love, Christians will sometimes emphasize the, the action of loving others. We'll emphasize what love does. Namely, it seeks the good of others. Regardless of how you feel about them, regardless of how you're seeking to, to seek their good makes them feel about themselves. And that's right. After all, God is the one who gets to define what is good for us. He alone perfectly possesses the knowledge of good and evil, not us. Our sense of what is good for us is often tainted by sin and doesn't feel good or or make us feel good about ourselves to to have our brokenness exposed, even though such correction is what does us good. So the point is, it's right to note that loving others, loving others requires seeking their good regardless of how you feel about them and regardless of how it makes them feel about themselves. That's true, but still... Love is more than just actions. We've been set apart for a sincere love, says Peter. An earnest love, a a from-the-heart kind of love. So then the love that we're called to, it's not merely seeking the good of others, seeking the well-being of others, it's desiring their good, desiring their well-being. When Christ loved us by shedding His precious blood for our sins, it was not an unfeeling, dispassionate kind of love. It was a sincere love, a a from-the-heart love, a 
from the pure heart kind of love. And having been loved in this way, we are now to grow in genuinely loving others in that same way, beginning with the household of God. Notice he says it's with a sincere brotherly love that we are to love one another. It's first and foremost meaning brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters in the church. Three times now in the letter, God has been addressed as our Father. Our Father who has caused us to be born again, verse 3, so that we can then be addressed as obedient children of the Father, verse 14. In the next verse here, verse 23, Peter will explain the the reason why we are to love one another with a brotherly love, so we have all been born again. We've been reborn into the family of God. So as we recognize the emphasis is on loving brothers and sisters in Christ, does this mean that We're not being called to desire and to seek the well-being of non-Christians? Well, of course we are. We're commanded to love our enemies, said Jesus. But our first priority is to love those who are of the family of faith. How can you expect to have and to show sincere love for God's enemies, those who are still estranged from the Father, if you've not yet come to love your spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ? It starts with the family. It starts in the church. As Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The brotherhood in Christ. So we see that we have been set apart to love as the family of God. Beginning with the elect exiles, as he calls us, the elect exiles with whom we have linked arms on this earthly pilgrimage, journeying together toward our eternal home. We've been set apart to love as the family of God, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And what is that imperishable seed through which we've been born again? Well, through the living and abiding Word of God, he says. The Word of God, meaning the inscripturated Word. This is clear given the way that Peter immediately appeals to the written words of Isaiah. But even more specifically, Peter means the gospel. He identifies it in verse 25 as the good news that was preached to you. It, the gospel, is the living and abiding Word of God. It imparts and it sustains our spiritual life. It's living and abiding, both bringing about the new birth. As we hear, as we believe the gospel, it imparts new life. It brings about the new birth, and it brings about an ongoing transformation from what we once were to what we will eternally be in glory. In our, in our natural birth, we were born of perishable seed. It gave us life, but it's a life that is fading. We were born of flesh that is like grass. It it withers, it dies, because it's a fleshly seed that is tainted by sin. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Jesus said to to Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee, in John chapter 3, He said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. 
And the means, the only means by which the Holy Spirit causes anyone to be born again is through hearing the gospel, the message that Christ died for our sins. As Jesus then said to Nicodemus in John 3.14, He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Faith, this saving faith, this born-again faith, it comes from hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. This means that all people in all places must call upon the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And thus, all people in all places must hear this good news. They must hear the gospel in order to obey the gospel and be saved. And thus, we must do our part to make the gospel heard by all peoples in all places. It's the gospel. The gospel is the imperishable seed. It must be planted. It must take root in the heart in order for new life, spiritual life, to sprout and to grow and to bear fruit. This language of new birth, it's not merely figurative of the eternal life that we will be granted at the resurrection. No, the new birth is something that has already taken place. The new life is something that is experienced now. Spiritual fruit is blossoming now, namely the fruit of love. That's the argument of these verses. If the imperishable seed the imperishable seed of the gospel, the word of God, if, if it's powerful enough to secure and to ultimately produce and sustain life without end, eternal life, well, then it's powerful enough to produce a life of love here and now. Peter is saying that we have been made alive to love through the word of God. As the butterfly is no longer a caterpillar, we are not what we once were. And this should be evident in how we now live, in how we now love. The life of, a, of the butterfly is radically different from the life of the caterpillar. No more crawling through the dirt. No more gorging itself on every delight it can find. No, now there's a, the spreading of its beautiful wings, bringing beauty to the world, pollinating plants, laying eggs to produce more beautiful butterflies that will themselves pollinate and reproduce and so on in perpetuity. Now, I'm stretching the analogy a bit, but you see the, the comparison. Having been born again, we should no longer be consumed with gorging ourselves on the self-serving delights of this world because with, with our new nature, we are now enabled to desire and to seek and to contribute to the well-being of others. We are enabled to love. But it's clearly an imperfect analogy. The butterfly, <clears throat> it quite readily emerges from its chrysalis and is in no way tempted to go back to its former ways, to snuggle back up into that chrysalis, to, to try to go back to the days of crawling in the dirt, to try to go back to its first skin that it shed as it began to grow or to that egg that it emerged from. No, at each stage of development, the, the, the butterfly left behind its prior life, never to return, as any going back would only stunt the process of growth. It doesn't, 
quite work for us. It's more of a struggle for us. As we emerge from our chrysalis, as we emerge from our conversion experience, it takes time for us to, to fully grow into the nature that is new and to leave our former ways behind. So we have to be instructed. We have to be instructed to, to no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, verse 14. We have to be instructed to shed the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, verse 18. We have to be instructed to, chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put away, shed your former loveless ways. First, he lists malice. <clears throat> malice could also be translated as evil. It's desiring and delighting in another person's harm. Whereas love desires and delights and seeks the good of others, malice desires and delights and seeks the harm of others. And it need not be as extreme as killing someone or robbing them or sabotaging their position or relationships. No, it can be as tame as smiling at their misfortune. I, I, I think of those instant karma videos that go around where you're supposed to laugh when someone overcome with road rage does something foolish and crashes their own car, that's loveless malice. Instead of pitying their, their foolishness and desiring that they grow and change, you take pleasure in their suffering. I, I saw one highly disturbing instant karma video where uh, the road rage guy actually flipped his car undoubtedly causing severe injury or worse to everyone inside. And the driver with the dash cam video that recorded it started laughing, saying that's what you get. Delighting in the harm suffered by someone else, that's malice. I think of uh, conservatives who, who are glad to see liberal cities imploding, to see once thriving, bustling areas as nothing more than homeless encampments, covered with excrement and used needles and people walking around like zombies or passed out on the street or, or, or worse. It's not wrong to point out when foolish and even wicked policies are to blame and that this is the inevitable consequence, but, but that's very different. Pointing it out is very different than smiling at the consequences of foolishness and sin, delighting in the horrific misery of others. That's malice. It's the opposite of the love that we have been set apart and made alive to show. The second item that he lists is deceit. Just put away all deceit, all falsehood, all lying. The lies that you tell about yourself that hide or, or cover up your, your inadequacies or your sin. So it's to make yourself appear better than you actually are. So there's the lies we tell about ourselves, but then there's the lies that we tell about others with the intent to harm them. It's going to explicitly be called out as slander later in this list. But then there's also lying to others for their supposed good, going along with their own self-deception, acting like they're not sinners in need of a Savior, acting like sinful lifestyle choices are not a form of rebellion against their Creator. And in our day, Acting like someone can be something that they could never be. Like a man pretending to be a woman. Encouraging self-deception is itself deceit. There is no love in lies. 
Third, we are to put away all hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. This really includes all forms of condemning others without pitying them, without longing for them to repent and to be restored. It's behaving as though you yourself are not a sinner, saved only by grace. That's hypocrisy. You need not be engaged in the exact same behavior that you're calling out in in order for it to be hypocrisy. Though that certainly counts, but it's not that narrow of a definition. Just condemning others without pitying them. Hypocrisy. Fourth is envy. Envy. Envy rarely ends at merely coveting what others have. Sometimes we'll limit envy to just think, oh, I, I want what others have. No, envy almost always leads to resenting that person for having it. Whether it be possessions, relationships, giftings, influence, positions in society or positions in influence even in the church. Envy wants those things taken away from others, often regardless of whether you gain them instead. Envy, as I said before, it's a a small child in the nursery who would rather a toy be broken or taken away than for some other child to have it. Whereas love rejoices with those who rejoice. It is not envious. It is not proud. And finally, fifthly, we are to put away all slander. Uh, The word for slander here is broader than merely spreading lies about someone. It's the same language that we saw when we studied James chapter 4 over the summer. James chapter 4 verse 11, he said, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not speak evil. It's the same language as slander here. Uh, And I'll refer you to that sermon uh, back in July for a lengthier discussion of what all this speaking evil entails. Uh, For now, I'll simply note three different categories of critical speech that I noted back in our study of James. First, there's slanderous speech. Slanderous speech that's saying something negative about someone uh, which you know is not true, right? Spreading lies. Prepare for an earful of that during this election season as that is the key mark of our political discourse. Slander. Mischaracterizing people, saying things that you know are not true. Second, there's maligning speech. Maligning speech. That's saying something negative about someone which you know is true, but which is not said for the purpose of seeking their good. Much gossip begins in this category of critical speech. It's true, but it's not helpful. And thirdly, there's judgmental speech. Saying something negative about someone which you merely think is true. Something you think is true. Most common form being jumping to conclusions about a person's heart. Jumping to conclusions about their motives. That's judgmental speech. Slander speech, maligning speech, judgmental speech, all this critical speech, and everything else in this list, we are to put all these things away, he says. But notice that this list involves more than just behavior, doesn't it? Malice and envy in particular, they need not be acted upon in order for them to be sinful. Desiring ill will of somebody else, desiring their harm, delighting in their harm, envying what they have, wanting them not to have it, well, That's not necessarily actions, is it? It's not necessarily behavior. That's a a matter of the heart. Actually, the issue in all these forms of lovelessness is the heart. And the more that we seek to, to put off ill will and to put on sincere brotherly love from a pure heart, well, the more we recognize how much impurity remains in our hearts. So we ask, how can our hearts be changed? Do we just work harder 
to sin less and to love more? Well, certainly we do work hard at that, but we don't just do that. We turn to the living and abiding Word of God that first imparted our new birth, our new life. I believe that's Peter's main point here in verse 2, where he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's saying continually go to the well that first brought you spiritual life. Continually go back to the fount of living water, to the place where you most intensely experienced the goodness of God. The cross of Christ, the gospel, the good news of all that Christ has achieved, but not merely just a a key verse about the sacrifice of Christ in the Bible, but the entire witness to Jesus in the Bible, the, the whole counsel of God revealed in the Old and the New Testament. It's all been given for us. It's all been given for our spiritual nourishment and growth in godliness. We've been set apart to love as a family of God. We've been made alive to love through the Word of God. And we are growing to love by the goodness of God. We're growing to love through our continued, ongoing experience of His goodness, most intensely experienced as we daily feast upon the pure spiritual milk of His living and abiding Word. Remember how this broader section began in verse 13. He said, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded. Verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As I mentioned last week, there's a close connection between discipleship and discipline. To be a disciple is to discipline yourself in the way of your master. And that begins with disciplining your mind, says Peter. And this takes effort, regular, deliberate, mental effort to ensure that our thinking is being influenced more by the truth of the word than by the lies of the world. So I encourage you, take time every day to immerse yourself in the word of God the start of a new year, I encourage you to to grab one of the the reading plans that's printed out on the table in the front. It will help you walk through the Bible in a year. That's what the the plan is for. It gets you through the entire 66 books in one year with a checkbox for every day of the week. If you've not tried that before, I strongly encourage find a reading plan that gets you in the Word. If If you've tried that and you've really struggled to be disciplined in it, well, at the very least, grab a daily devotional out on the table there. Every day, it just takes a few minutes. It's got a verse at the top, very short passage. Go look up that passage, read the passage, read the the commentary on the passage, and then meditate upon the application in the margin there. It takes two to five minutes to get your mind immersed in the Word of God each and every day. And as you grow in that discipline of of feasting on the the pure spiritual milk of the Word, well, then you can begin to to spend a few more minutes. uh, That says, for further study, it'll give you a few more passages to look up immerse your mind in this until the day you're able to get to the point where you're, you're consuming enough of the Word that you get through it in a year, every year. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Combat the lies of the world with the truth of the Word. Notice that Peter begins verse 3 with if. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If. Infants metaphor he uses, infants don't need to be taught to crave milk. Our little boy, Simeon, he he just turned nine months old yesterday. 
And there has never been a day in those nine months, never half a day, never more than a few hours, when he didn't crave milk. It's a distinctive mark of being alive. Returning one last time to the the analogy of the butterfly and the caterpillar. If a butterfly is still going and gorging itself on, on leaves and living in the dirt, rather than sucking on the sweet nectar of flowers, well, is that not evidence that it has never tasted the goodness of the flower? How could it go back to the leaf? Is is that not evidence that it is, in fact, still just a caterpillar? As infants crave milk, as butterflies crave nectar, those who have truly been born again through faith in Christ long for the pure spiritual milk of God's Word. So come, taste that the Lord is good in His Word. Partake of His goodness as the imperishable seed is implanted in you. And as you are nourished and sustained by His Word, as you grow up into salvation, as you grow up to love. Let us pray. Father, we thank You again for the gift of Your living and abiding Word. Lord, let us taste Your goodness in Your Word, that we may increasingly crave Your Word and not be satisfied with anything else, that we may be changed by Your goodness in Your Word. Lord, grow us up to love. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.